good to be awkward. Amen. Says the one awkward person in the church. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll own it like a banner. Listen, I, I have to tell you guys, this morning I literally was talking to my son. Look, I'm dressed a little bit different, okay? I've got a suit on with a sweater and converse, okay? I like it. My wife is wearing a skirt with a Star Wars t-shirt and rocking it like nobody's business, all right? My son will wear a t-shirt with a bow tie, like we don't care. But we were talking and I was telling my son, I was like, look, there's such a thing as called the status quo, right? Just what everybody does, what everybody expects everybody to do, what we call normal, as if there was any such thing. But I said, Cranfields, here's a piece of advice. Here's a piece of advice. This is separate. I'll get back to my story in a second. Here's a piece of advice. When you're talking to someone about the church or you're talking to someone in your family or you're talking to your spouse or significant other or you're talking to your brother, sister, whatever, don't ever say, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because what you have done is you've exiled them from the group. You've exiled them from the tribe and saying, you don't do that. No, communicate this way. We don't act that way. Because you're keeping them in the tribe, in the group, but you're telling them that they're acting in a manner different from the tribe. So I, when we get onto our kids, we don't say, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't act that way. We say this. We say, Cranfields don't talk that way. Cranfields don't do that. Because we want them to know that they're not excluded from us. They're still very much a part of us, but they're acting in a manner contrary to their identity. That's going, that's going to factor into the message. I'm not just throwing out random stuff. It's, it's hot off the press, but it's going to factor into the message. Because this morning I was talking to my son, and he had thought that a certain outfit was funny, like it made him smile. He, 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 he didn't understand why Faith ties a knot in the bottom of her skirt. He thought it was funny. And she's like, well, it makes me happy. And so we pointed out, you don't degrade anyone. Them feel less than. Cranfields don't do that. Cranfields encourage people. Cranfields make people feel accepted, make people feel welcome. We don't destroy people or insult people or offend people intentionally we do enough accidental offense without trying to do it on purpose but i told him i said look i said there's a thing called the status quo what people classify as normal the culture you know keeping up with what the fashion the latest the fashion i was like but cranfields don't do that cranfields like to be weird Cranfields like to be awkward. We like to be different because it makes us happy. And we aren't going to sacrifice our happiness so that other people can accept what we wear. No, we are confident enough in who we are and our tribe that if other people don't like it, well, like it or leave it, I don't care. Like, I am more interested 
in who God has made me to be and who God has made us to be rather than just having culture accept us. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So the reason I said all of that is because there is no joy in trying to keep up with the status quo. And what are we talking about this, in this series? What have we been talking about? We've been talking about the oil of gladness. We've been talking about the baptism of joy. And I'm going to tie all this back together, but just keep that in mind. Your identity and weirdness and awkwardness. Let's do a little bit of recap. Just put a bookmark there. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We're going to do a little bit of groundwork recap. The idea of intentional repetition. Let me ask a question. Who could tell me what subject or even a point from the first sermon I preached in this church? What book of the Bible it was in? What was one of the main points? What was a character I mentioned? What was a story I told? Most of you guys were here. Not all, but most of you guys were here. Who could tell me? Just lift your hand. You don't have to actually tell me. Is anybody? You guys know, how many of you guys know what Chick-fil-A is? How many of you guys know where Chick-fil-A was, is from? At Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. I read a book. It's called Four, F-O-R, period. And in this book, I forget the exact number, but the author used to be a top-level exec for Chick-fil-A in, in their advertising department. And he, he said they did a poll, a study, in Atlanta, Georgia, where Chick-fil-A has like 486 billboards, something like that, 486 billboards that say, eat more chicken, eat more chicken. And they did a survey out of a hundred or a thousand, I forget what the number it was, how many people could tell them whose slogan was eat more chicken? They would go up and say, can you tell me what restaurant has the slogan, eat more chicken? And you know how many people knew that it was Chick-fil-A? Less than 40%. Out of 480 some odd billboards in one city where the restaurant originated, less than 40%. My statistics may be a little off because I'm just pulling this from the deep recesses of my mind, so don't judge me too harshly. But less than 40% could actually remember that Chick-fil-A slogan was eat more chicken. And the author was doing this because he was talking about the necessity of repetition. And as I started this series, that was one thing that God had been putting on my heart was repeat repeat, repeat, over and over and over again. See, I preached a great message the first time I was here. I mean, I'm just going to say that. It was awesome. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, it, have I preached anything else? And I'm just kidding. Lois Ann comment, complimented and said, you did a great job when you preached. And I was like, you always say it with a tone of surprise. Is that, have I not, ever not preached a great message? But anyway, but no, I preached on Uzzah and the carrying of the ark and Uzzah touching the ark and, you know, touching something that should have given life, but it gave death because he was in the wrong place. Anyway, it was a great message. It was a great message. But the point of the matter is, is that you guys don't remember that. After I said it, you may, be, you may remember, like, well, that sounds vaguely familiar. But that was because I preached it one time. And I haven't preached it again in the year and two months that I've been here. But if I were to preach that message, I'm not going to do this. Don't panic. But if I were to preach that message six weeks in a row, how many of you think you would be able to tell me what I was preaching on? Yeah. You'd be like, dear Lord, shut up or change what you're preaching or something. But you guys would be able to tell me what I had preached if I preached it six weeks in a row, if I continually repeated it and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it. Let me ask you another question. I have a, a statement that I say pretty often. I say, sometimes God has to clean out your closet to give you what? New clothes. Hey. What about this one? How can we withhold anything when God has given everything? What about this? We do not seek our preference, but we seek His. See? But I repeat those all the time. And so you guys can finish the statement because I say them often. The point is is that in this series, I'm repeating stuff. And I'm not going to go on for 15 weeks or whatever you know it's only like seven messages in this series unless God changes it but the point is is that as we're working through this the reason I'm going to continue to repeat things is because I want you to get this I want you to learn and to understand what it is to live a life of joy to live a life in gladness and so when we started this series, let me do a little bit of repetition. Is that okay? Now that I've shown you how beneficial repetition is, is it okay if I do a little bit? I'm going to either way, but so you might as well say yes, so I think you're on my team. <laughs> anyway, when we began this series, I talked to you guys about my own state of depression. I did. I talked to you guys about how the majority of my life, I went through some pretty rough stuff, and the majority of my life, I had almost zero emotional capacity whatsoever. The only emotions that I ever felt, if I felt any, were negative ones. I could feel fear, and I could feel rage real well. And let me give you a little tidbit here. Rage and anger are not the same thing. Anger is actually a good response. Everybody's like, wait a second, what? Anger is a good response. Because anger is an indignation towards something that is not right. That's righteous indignation. Be angry and sin not. Jesus got angry and He overthrew some tables and He made a whip sitting there foaming at the mouth making a whip because they had distorted the purpose of the temple and people weren't able to be ministered to because other people were worried about making money. Anger is a good response towards an injustice, towards unrighteousness. It's good. Rage is a product of fear. Rage is a product of fear. When we're scared, 
we react in rage, and it looks like anger, but when we yell and we bang our head against the wall and we punch stuff and we throw stuff and we scream and we act like different people, that's rage produced by fear. It's because we're afraid of losing something and we're afraid of being slighted. We're afraid of our reputation or our persona being torn down. That's, that's rage. And for the, most of my life, I knew fear and I knew rage. And I lived in a perpetual state of depression. Until recently. See, I lived in that state almost my whole life. And my only responsibility was me. What you don't realize is every single person has a weight that they carry on their shoulders. It's, it's the weight of responsibility. And it can be a pretty heavy burden sometimes. And for a man, it gets real heavy when you get married. Because people don't want to think like this, and especially out in our culture, they don't want to think like this. But when a man and a woman get married, guess who becomes the head of that household? The man. Guess who adopts a new spiritual weight? The man. Now he's not responsible for his own stuff, but he's also responsible for his stuff and his wife's stuff. And then you have kids. And having kids, now you're responsible for your own stuff, your wife's stuff, and your kids' stuff. She's responsible for her stuff and her kids' stuff. And a lot of times, the husband doesn't do the job, so the wife takes his stuff too. And then that she breaks because she's carrying responsibility she was never meant to carry, or weight she was never meant to carry. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the perfect order. The husband's carrying his weight, his wife's weight, his kid's weight. And then God told us specifically, your wife needs to be a stay-at-home mother and raise these kids. Okay, wonderful. That's 50% of our income. What are we going to do? And so now there was another level of weight. And then God says, hey, you're going to take this huge pay cut, because we finally got that figured out. You're going to take this huge pay cut, and you're going to be a senior pastor. So now I've got my stuff, my wife's stuff, my kids' stuff, and the church's stuff. All of it. And see, I'm still trying to do this in my own strength. And I'm trying to not just take a healthy church's stuff on, but this is the church that was broken and destroyed and on the verge of death, and I'm trying to replant it and work out the junk. And let me tell you, there's some churches out there that got some junk. And so my depression was going like this and it just decided it was going to take a deep dive. And I got real, real bad off. Real, real bad off. One time my phone died and I was gone for an hour longer than my wife expected. And you can ask her, she was in a panic when I got home because she knew how bad off I was. And she had thought, thought that I had went and committed suicide. That's how bad I was. That's how bad I was when we came here. But I didn't let anybody know it. Because what do you do when you go to church? You put on a face. Don't you? Paul starts off right here in Romans 1.16 and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. This is not what I had planned to preach, but I feel the Holy Spirit leading me in this track. So I'm just going to preach this if this is okay. If this is okay, I'm just going to roll with this. It's recap. It all tethers together. We'll see where we end up. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not embarrassed by it. But a lot of times 
we are embarrassed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of times, our enthusiasm for the gospel depends upon who we're around. It does. In our workplace, well, we're a Christian, but we're not one of those fanatics. You guys may not live like this. I, I don't know, but I've been in places where sometimes in my own life and in my own walk, you know, I was trying to share the gospel with people, and it's like, are you one of those crazy people? And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. And then, so your enthusiasm for the gospel kind of gets tampered down depending on who you're around. And what happens is we start carrying all this stress and all this weight and all this sadness. And then we come across a scripture. We come across a scripture. Like, I read one this morning and I was like, oh, that one's not, that one's tough. (laughs) It was this. Let me just tell you a little bit about the stuff I'm still working through. It was this. Do not be wise in your own mind. (laughs) Oh, come on. Come on, laugh. If you can't laugh at that. Look, do not be wise in your own esteem. Do not be wise in your own mind. In your own consideration, do not consider yourself wise. And I'm like, look, this is prideful. I don't care. I'm still working. I'm not perfect yet. But I'm looking around. I'm like, Lord, if I'm not wise and I don't know this scripture, then who on the blessed earth does? That's just a conf- that's a confession on my part. How am I supposed to look at this when I can quote as much of it as I can quote? I know it as well as I know it. I've studied it as much as I've studied it. How am I supposed to say I'm not wise or not consider myself wise in my own mind? There's lots of solutions that I'm not asking for. I'm saying that this was a scripture that hit me and I was like Man, God, why'd you put that there? (laughs) But see, we come across a verse like that that hits us just a little bit wrong or just rubs the grain just a little bit. And so what do we do? We become embarrassed by it or we become ashamed of it. And so you know what we do, what we end up doing? We end up violating that Scripture or explaining it away. And we'll say something like, well, I am wise, but in comparison to God, I'm not as wise as I could be. (laughs) But see, that doesn't fit the text because you're still calling yourself wise. You're still trying to get away with something. You're trying to slide one past God. And what we do is we sacrifice our joy for momentary content. See, we want this momentary fleeting image of peace and happiness and satisfaction, like, I don't like the way that that verse made me feel. 
So instead of enduring that discomfort to get to where God wants me to be, instead of going through that circumcision of the heart and that removal of that flesh and getting where God wants me to be, I'm just going to kind of shirk away from that and I'm going to come over here because if I can explain that away, it makes me feel good in the moment. And what we haven't realized is that Satan has been so clever. Faith and I were talking about this last week. Satan has been so clever in the system of the world in getting us to believe that joy and happiness are synonyms. And getting us to believe that joy and happiness are the same thing, he has gotten one over on the church. Because what the church does now is we think, well, I'm a Christian, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and joy equals happy, so I have to come into church and make everybody think that I'm happy. Even if it's a lie from the pit of hell, we have to make people think that. Come on, tell me you haven't done that. You're going through hell on earth. Not heaven on earth, hell on earth. You're walking through it. Everything is going wrong finances, relationships, your spiritual walk isn't what it should be, you're sick in your body, your mind's a mess, you're going through it, and you come into church and you slap that smile on because you're supposed to be joyful and you have bought into the lie that joy and happiness are the same thing. Am I wrong? And see, what we do is we say, God is trying to bring us through some pain, some surgery, I've talked to some people that are getting ready to have surgery and you're going through getting ready to have surgery. Surgery is uncomfortable. The recovery period is uncomfortable. But it's necessary to accomplish a purpose and bring healing to your body. you got some stuff that needs to be removed. They go in, they do operation. When I was in fifth grade, I had appendicitis and my appendix ruptured. I'm thanking God for some surgery. <coughs> surgery was painful. And getting your appendix taken out, recovering from that is like death. It hurts. At least it did to a fifth grader. But it hurt. But if I would have allowed that ruptured appendix to stay, the pain, which wasn't as bad as the recovery, the pain would have produced a sickness, which may not have hurt as bad, but it eventually would have killed me. And see, what we do is when God's wanting to bring us through some pain to get us to where He wants us to be so we can experience true joy, the true baptism of joy, to experience that state of gladness, we shirk away from that pain because it makes us uncomfortable and we say, no, I'm going to buy into the lie. I'm going to stay right here and slap a smile on. That's why I stayed in depression for so daggum long is because every time I'd walk into a church where people could actually help or pray for me i was like no i'm the pastor i gotta smile i'm supposed to be joyous i'm not supposed to be depressed you can't be a christian and be depressed you can't be a pentecostal and be dealing with depression how can i have the spirit of god in me and be depressed so i bought into the lie believing that joy and happiness were the same thing And because I believed that joy and happiness were the same thing, I didn't want anyone to see me without joy, so I would slap a smile on and fake it when I went into the house of God. And many people do that. They walk in and they throw that mask on. There's been numerous messages preached about this, but they throw that mask on and they say, this is how I'm supposed to be. So this is the status quo. This is being fitting in with what everybody expects. 
That's why I said, remember Cranfields, we like awkward, we like weird. We're going we're gonna to do what we want to do because we are not going to buy into that lie again. We're not going to buy into that lie again. I don't care if I am the only person and I stick out like a sore thumb. I am going to do that because I am not going to buy into that nonsensical lie again because I've seen where it can put us. I've seen what it does to people. And that's why people out there, they don't want to come to church because they come in and they see everybody acting like hypocrites. And they're like, I know you're broken. I know you're mean. And you know what happens? Here's what happens. When you have fear and it produces rage and you have all that pent up and you come in and you slap a smile on and you pretend to be something else, guess what? The church may not get it, but the waiter and waitress Sunday after church does. They do. You come in and you blow up on them and you're short and you're mean and you're rude to them because you have pretended to be something you're not just hours before. And that is not what we're talking about with the baptism of joy. That is not what we're after. I do not want you to come in here and slap a smile on and lie. <laughs> I um, Have you guys ever thought about visiting a city? Like, you know, they have the websites like visit... PA or visit T- Tennessee. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm going to go to Gatlinburg. <laughs> what did they say? That's Las Vegas for Baptists. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus. I'm going to visit Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So I'm going to put it in. And then they have the website for that city, right? Or like, I'm going to visit Detroit. Or I'm going to visit, um, I think Detroit is the most dangerous city in the U.S. right now, isn't it? Detroit, Memphis is up there too. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to visit Detroit. Or I'm going to visit Memphis. And you pull up the website and man, they'll show you some pretty pictures, won't they? And you scroll down three pages and then like there's the slum alley where a person just got mugged and shot. That's on their homepage, right? No. They don't put that junk on their homepage. Why? Because it may deter you from visiting there, wouldn't it? It'd keep you from going there. If like you're, you're like, I'm going to visit Detroit. And then you open it up and there's like some chalk line of somebody that just got murdered. Our murder rate is the highest in the U.S. per capita. It's like, oh, plans changed. (laughs) But that's what we do in our life. We post the pretty pictures, don't we? Social media, Instagram, Facebook, we post the pretty pictures, don't we? Church, we come in, we put up the pretty picture, don't we? We don't want to say that we were just in a knockdown, drag out fight with our spouse. We don't want to say that we've been depressed for five, ten years. We don't want to say that we've contemplated suicide. We don't want to say that we don't know how we're going to make it. We don't want to say that we just committed a gross and egregious sin or anything like that. No, we post up the pretty pictures. But see, here's the problem with that. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us very expressly that if the light isn't on it, It isn't going to be fixed. See, at Francis Chan, Faith had me listen to a Francis Chan message the other day, and he was talking about in church how it's opposite. God says, do your good works in secret and confess your sins to one another. And he said, but we've switched it around. We we confess our good works to one another and we do our sins in secret. 
Like we've done it, we're, we're doing it the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. And see, that's what the problem is. Is we run from the light of Scripture dealing with the stuff that we need to have dealt with because we don't want that feeling of circumcision. Look, I'm just going to be completely candid with you. I have read the accounts of Joshua and everyone that's 40 and under, and they're getting ready to go in the promised land, and they circumcised a lot of them. That is terrifying to me. I don't understand that. I'm like, goodness gracious alive, that would hurt like crazy. Look, come on, I just made everybody uncomfortable. That would hurt. That would hurt being a grown man and having to go through that would be excruciating. But you know what? They did it. But see, we as adults or mature Christians or wherever at your walk, we're afraid to go through that pain process to get to where God wants us to be in the baptism of joy. Because of the pain, we stay over here and we try to grasp at momentary fleeting happiness. And I've told you guys before, happiness is circumstantial. You can't control it. It's a way a vapor. I, I hate, here's a confession, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They, they got that wrong. And I'll say it, they got it wrong. The pursuit of happiness is not a good objective goal. Because it's fleeting. It's not something you can hold on to. It's here, it's gone. It's here, it's gone. It's here, it's gone. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of joy, like a perpetual state of abiding in joy, I shouldn't have said that, but I did. Whatever. <laughs> Forgive me, be mad at me, I don't care. But the point is, happiness is fleeting. And if we live our whole life in pursuit of a tiny little sliver of happiness that will last for 10 seconds and then it's gone, we've missed it. God doesn't want you happy. God wants you joyful. And there's a difference. Joy is tethered to anticipation of His presence. Joy is a perpetual state and desire for intimacy. And I, I've used this example. Have you guys ever like been eager for an event? Like you're, you're eager for your birthday, you're eager for Christmas, you're, you're eager, like you're getting a new car and, and you're waiting for the day and then it, it, they were putting it through the detail and it's like, oh, you can have it in two days. Or you order a package on Amazon and it's like, I've been waiting for this, I've been waiting for this, two-day shipping. Okay, now it's four days. Why is it taking so long? I really want this to get here. And like you're, you're eager for it. And then you open it and like, yeah, you're happy, but you're happy for a few moments and then it's just like, okay, whatever. And you go on with your life. It's almost like the anticipation of it is better than the realization of it. You know, you know what I'm saying? That anticipation is a taste of what joy is. It's a taste of what joy is. Because see, in God, you can never come to the full exhaustion of the realization. You can't. You can never exhaust the fullness of God. So if you abide in this perpetual desire for that realization, it only grows and it never diminishes. That's what joy is. It's tethering yourself to this intimate desire for God's presence. And to do that, you have to go through moments of pain, moments of struggle. That's why First Peter says, in this you rejoice. In what? In the fact that you have a salvation prepared for you, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, if necessary, for a season, you are in heaviness through manifold trials or temptations. 
and that the trying of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire, may be found to glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, yet you love Him, whom now you see Him not, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible or unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy inexpressible. It's in that anticipation of intimacy with God. See, intimacy with God is not like, okay, we're intimate. Hey, it's the desire for more. It's the yearning. And it only ever increases. The more of God you get, the more you want. But see, what happens is you come to this passage in Scripture where the Gospel challenges you. And instead of letting it challenge and prune you, instead of letting that fire purify you like gold that your faith may be found to glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you pull back because you're afraid of getting burned. Because you're afraid of the cut. You're afraid of the pain process. And many of us, we never get to get to the baptism of joy because we will not allow those portions of Scripture that speak to us, that challenge us, that shape us, we don't allow them to do their job. Oftentimes, we would never outright say this, but we think that in our modern culture, we know better than God. I've heard numerous preachers say, well, that worked in, you know, 1900s, but that's not the way the culture is now. That's how preachers write off and say, well, homosexuality is okay, love is love. No, it's not. No, it's not. Love is love, but that's not love. But that's why they'll do that. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible tells us, you know, that you need to remain abstinent until marriage. And they're like, well, no, it's okay. We can just do whatever because we're in a different cultural climate. And the answer is, no, we're not. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. But a lot of times we don't let Scripture dictate our life. We shirk away from those things. And in doing so, we put up a blockade to prevent us from coming to a perpetual state of joy. We prevent ourselves from ever getting into fullness of joy because we shirk away from the process of pain that's required to get to joy. See, the scripture from Hebrews 1.9 that says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That scripture, like we talked about, I said I was going to do intentional repetition and then I just went off and haven't done intentional repetition. Here it is. Uh, That scripture, the second portion of it, the realization of the blessing, God anointing you with the oil of gladness. Oil of gladness, baptism of joy, same thing. Same thing. That realization of that is conditional upon the first phrase that you love righteousness and hate iniquity. And we talked about righteousness, our identity in Christ. You are righteous because you believe that you are righteous in Christ. And I said this to you guys before. People are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners. People are not righteous because they do righteous things. They do righteous things because God has made them righteous in Christ Jesus. It flows from the inside out, not the outside in. People try to say, well, they're a bad person. They do bad things. No, they do bad things because they're a bad person. It's an issue of the heart. From the heart flow all the issues of life. That's identity. You believe that you are righteous in Christ and you will do righteous things. That went over like a herd of turtles. (laughs) 
You believe that you are righteous because Christ has made you righteous. How many of you guys have thought that the moment that you sin, God is mad at you? How many of you think that the moment that you sin, that you've lost your salvation, you need to go find it? People have been taught that. That if you sin, you've lost your salvation. No. Jesus paid the penalty for all your sin, past, present, and future. Your sin is paid for. If He died on the cross for your sin, it's paid for. It's done. He's not an Indian giver, to use that old phrase. Like, oh, here's your salvation. Oh, you messed up. Here, give it back. Like, that's not, it's not a game of tug of war with God. He gave it to you. It's a gift. Your righteousness is a gift, according to Romans 5. And you maintain it by your works? No. But see, we've taught that. The church has taught that. They have taught, yeah, you get saved by faith, but you have to keep your salvation by doing good things. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. Paul actually deals with this in Galatians 3 very vehemently. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? <laughs> are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the works of the flesh? No. You're made righteous by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and then you confess with your mouth that He is Lord and for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That it is a process that is initiated by faith and maintained by faith. Believing, not by works, Works flow out of that, not for it. And that's the first step in this process to joy. Then we went into, well, okay, well, that's your identity. Then we went into, well, what's your affections? And we talked about the four loves. And then we flowed from affections into your communication. Do you speak death and life? Or do you bless God and curse men and a divided fountain and all of that wonderful stuff? That was last week, if you guys remember. That was a great message too, I'm just saying. <laughs> but <laughs> the point is, is that all that stuff flows from the inside out. From the inside out. But here's what we have been doing in church for so long. We have been building a wall in between our relationship and our potential for the baptism of joy by working from the outside in see when i'm dealing with, was dealing when i was dealing with depression that was an inside thing and when i walked into church and i slapped a smile on i was trying to work from the outside in and that would never lead to the baptism of joy that would never lead to the oil of gladness all that would do is just lie a lie isn't something you just speak with your mouth. A lie is any attempt to de deceive or to manipulate someone else. And by walking in and slapping a smile on when it wasn't there to be put on, I was lying. And you know what? That's an abomination before God. It's to lie. To play the hypocrite. 
You whited sepulchers filled with dead men's bones. You washed the outside of the cup while the inside is filled with. You guys know those verses. But that's what we've been doing in church for so long. And that's the difference between the baptism of joy, the fullness of joy. God doesn't want you miserable. Does God want you to experience pain every once in a while to bring you to where you need to be? Absolutely. But God doesn't want you miserable. God wants you to have the fullness of joy. Ask so whatsoever you will in my name and believing you shall receive it that your joy may be made full. God wants you to have the fullness of joy. All of these things are written so that you may have joy and that your joy may be made full. God wants you to have joy. He wants you to abide in a perpetual state of gladness. But you can't get there if you don't go through the process. If you don't deal with the things that in your life that need to be dealt with. See, we talked about the loving, the righteousness, the identity, the affections, how that dictates our communication. But the thing that we haven't dealt with on the conditional aspect, remember the first half of the verse is the condition for the realization of the second half of the verse. We want the oil of gladness, we've got to meet the conditions. Loving righteousness and hating iniquity. And hating iniquity. That's what we're talking about now. Is there some iniquity in our lives that prevent us from coming to joy? And before you think that this is going to turn into a legalistic works-based message, it's not. It's not. Do you know what iniquity means? Does anybody know what iniquity means? There's several words that are used for sin and transgression, wickedness, iniquity. And each one of them mean a different thing. Sin, missing the mark. The target's over here, you shoot over here, you've sinned. You've missed the mark. Transgression. Here's the line, you jump across it. You've violated. You've transgressed. Wickedness. Here's the truth, you twist it and bend it and distort it and pervert it. That's wickedness. Iniquity is lawlessness. It's the absence of law. And before you think, oh, see, I told you this was going to be a legalistic works-based message, there are more than one types of law in Scripture. Most, uh, most often, when we talk about the law, we're talking about the law of Moses. We're talking about the 623 laws, the ten that were engraven on stone, four on this slab, six on this slab, the Ten Commandments, the law. But see, Paul taught, and James and Jesus and every other writer of the New Testament talk about a different law. And it has various names, like the law of liberty, the law of the spirit. The law of the letter brings death, but the law of spirit brings life and peace and godliness. See, being lawless in the context of this isn't just talking about adhering to the 623 laws. And no, I'm not advocating that you have no morality because if you're actually changed by grace or saved by grace, you will be changed by it. you made righteous, you do righteous things. If that's the kind of tree that God makes you into, that's the kind of fruit that you will bear. I get so tired of people saying, you're going to give them an, a license or an advocacy to sin. And I'm like, no, I'm not. They've been sinning without a license this whole time. It's about time we start talking about grace and and about what this book actually communicates. It communicates that God did it freely. 
And if He's changed you, you're going to produce a different kind of fruit. That's why Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree will not bear good fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. So if God changes you from an orange tree to an apple tree, guess what, buddy? You're going to start producing oranges. Or from an orange tree. You're going to start producing apples. Sorry, I got that flipped. You're going to produce the fruit that God makes you produce, you know. <laughs> and that's, that's what's going to happen. So stop getting it like, oh, legalism, antinomia. Who cares? Throw those words out the window. They're not worth the $2 that we pay for them anyway. The truth is, is when he's talking about lawlessness, he's talking about going against the law of the Spirit. He's talking about disregarding the law that is produced by faith. Disregarding that. And let me tell you something. Can I just... Are we okay? I feel like I'm all over the place, but... (laughs) Hate and love... I've shared this before. Hate and love are not opposites. What's the opposite of love? Fear. I've said that before, and I was wrong. Don't ever say that I can't stand up here and say that I was wrong. I have said before that fear is the opposite of love. Let me tell you something. It's not. You want to know why? What's the opposite of love? It's not hate. Love has no opposite. Love has no opposite. Because opposite implies equality. And there is nothing that is equal with love. Just like God and Satan are not opposites. God has no opposite. And God is love. Therefore, love has no opposite. There is no opposite to love. There is There are things that work in opposition to love, but they are not the opposite of love. Love has no equal. It has no opposite. It stands in an arena and in a category all its own. Fear works in opposition to it. And fear will produce rage. And hate can oftentimes work in opposition to love. But hate is most often a product of love. And people are like, wait a second. No, I, no, hate is a product of love. You hate baby, or you hate babies. You love babies, you hate abortion. If you hate babies, you might love abortion. I don't know. But that, people get pretty twisted. But if you love babies, you hate abortion. If you love marriage, you hate divorce. If you love kids, you hate child la- slave labor. I mean, if you hate the church, then you love the world. You love the world, you might hate the church. You see what I'm saying? Hate is a production of love. If you love one thing, it produces an antagonism or an enmity towards things that try to undermine and destroy that thing that is the object of your love. That's why God hates sin. Because it undermines His covenant with us. Hate, iniquity. You've hated it. Because you love the law of the Spirit. You love righteousness, therefore you produce a hate for unrighteousness. To our scripture in Romans 1.16. I won't preach another three hours, trust me. One maybe, but not three. <laughs> Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I'll read a couple more verses here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And you can go on and it talks about God giving them up to uncleanness. It talks about God giving them over to a depraved or a reprobate mind. It talks about God giving them over to the things of their own heart. But the point is this, I'm going to back up and I'm going to deal with the positive first and then I'm going to address the negative. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We started with that, didn't we? That's kind of how we started, talking about shame and talking about how shame can get us to, to put on a different face. You know, Paul, when he lays hands on Timothy and the beginning of 2 Timothy. How many of you guys know this verse? 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given us the spirit of but of God hasn't given us the spirit of fear but the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. That's right. How many of you guys know why Paul was saying that to Timothy? This may help some of you. Because he was, af- <laughs> because he was afraid. <laughs> what was he afraid about? Preaching to older people, being young. According to the context of the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, I know about your tears. He's like, but, but I remember the faith that was in you, the genuine faith that was in your grandmother Lois and your mother Una, Eunice. Something. Anyway, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know weird names, but <laughs> if you're named, oh, Lois, oh, oops. <laughs> Glad she's not here today. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> At least not the way it came out. <laughs> Lord, help me. But I know the genuine faith that you have. It's a heritage of faith. And I personally know about that gift that was in you from the laying on of hands. I did it. I was there. I know about it. But you've got to stir that gift up. Right? This is 1-6. You've got to stir that gift up. Will you do me a favor? Put up first, or 2 Timothy 1-8. You guys see that? Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed. Wait a second. 116, I'm not ashamed. See, what Timothy was afraid of was Timothy was afraid of operating in his calling. He had the gift, he had the calling, but he was looking at the external. He was looking at people older than him. He was looking at Paul, and good Lord, you want to be feel bad about yourself. Compare yourself to the Apostle Paul. Like, Timothy was looking at the giant of the faith, and he was looking at all these people, and he was scared. He was anxious about what he had. And Paul's saying, no, you've got genuine faith. It's a heritage of faith. You've got a gift in you that you need to stir up. God gave you that. I was there. I commissioned you myself. Don't be fearful. God didn't give you that. That's not from God. 
He gave you power to do what He's asked you to do. He gave you love so that you could be comforted and encouraged in doing it. And He gave you a sound mind so that you could pursue this with wisdom and clarity. So don't be ashamed. You see that? Don't be ashamed. What Paul is communicating here is don't be embarrassed. And that's what we've done. is because we've looked at everybody else. We've looked at people that we think may preach better than us or people that we think sing better than us or people that can dance better than us or people that may be prettier or ugly. I don't know. We look at all these other people and we think... (laughs) Chuck's saying he's prettier than me. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we look at all these external things and we allow it to put anxiety and fear in us. And that's not from God. And so once again, we see what He's called us to do. But we're afraid of the discomfort. And we shirk away. And it makes us ashamed of the Gospel. And we say, no, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. I'm just afraid to you that my gifts won't be enough. So you're ashamed of the Gospel. I'm not afraid, ashamed of the Gospel. I just don't think that I can... That that scripture applies to me like that. So you're ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I just, I, I, I heard this one, but God can't control my temper. So you're ashamed of the gospel. We make all these excuses and we don't want to put things like they are. We don't want to call black, black and white, white. We want to say, no, it's this area of gray. No, it's not. It's a book. It's written. Like the words don't work in a curved line. It's written right there. You can read it really easily. And if you can't get a translation, you can. But we want to pull away. And in essence, we're ashamed of the gospel. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I just, I, I can't. So you're ashamed of the gospel. I'm scared. So you're ashamed of the gospel. I, I'm just, I, I just don't think I'll be good enough. So you're ashamed of the gospel. Like it, it all comes back to the same thing. Are you or are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because if you're not ashamed of the gospel, then guess what? You'll do what it says. And for those of you that like to make this categorical distinction, because I've known people like this, they say, well, the gospel is what it says in the New Testament. No. The gospel is the evangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. And last time I read it, it said, In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Meaning that every jot and every tittle, every letter, every word, every period, every question mark is a beacon pointing to Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, then this entire book, and I know I'm holding up an iPad, but the entire Bible is the gospel. It may be a type, it may be an anti-type, it may be a pattern, it may be expressly written, but the entire thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is written so that we may serve Him better. So that we may worship Him the way He desires to be worshipped. I asked you about what the first message I preached was. It was on worshipping God according to the pattern He set forth. That was Uzzah's problem. Is They took the Philistines' advice and built a cart and pulled it with the best oxen. That's how the Philistines sent it back to Israel after God cursed them with ulcers and all that other stuff. They used a Philistine pattern instead of the one He prescribed to the priesthood. And it ended in death. 
When we are ashamed of the gospel and we try to do it our own way and we try to write our own method or prescribed version of serving God the way that we think we know how, it always ends in death, ours or somebody else's. God has set this forth in His Word very clear on what we should do, on how we should speak, on how we should act. And if we do anything other than that, we're ashamed of the gospel. And let me tell you something. I already hinted at this, but this was so good. I can't not say this. I was watching Paul Washer preach this past week, and he was preaching on the gospel. And he he said something, and it just put it in my mind. How many of you guys like history? I, I love history, especially biblical history. I love it. I told Faith, we joke. I cannot tell you the last time a day has went by that I have not thought about the Roman Empire. I'm serious. I think about the Roman Empire almost every day. And if it's not the Roman, then it's like the Greek or the Egyptian. I, I don't know. I just that, that warfare was cool. Like that was face-to-face, swords, axes, shields. Not, I can press a button and send a missile. Like that's pansy warfare. No, that was real warfare. Like face-to-face, we're going at it. You know what I'm saying? Like that's video games. If you can pilot a drone to drop bombs on somebody, that's no different than playing Call of Duty. Except it actually kills people in real life. No, in that warfare, people had to look you in the eye and fight. I I think about that stuff all the time. I love history. But did you know, I can't do it, my mind's not big enough, and there's not really an individual that could, but it is entirely possible to exhaust the limits of history. It is. You could study everything there is to know about history and know every detail about everything that has ever transpired. Somebody could, theoretically. Because it's finite. It has its limits. Here's one. How many of you guys like eschatology, the study of the end times? Come on, we're doing the book of Revelation. You better raise your hand. (laughs) I like it. I love it. Uh, I want some more of it. (laughs) Wow! Couldn't even not go there. (laughs) But the thing is, is... Eschatology is really awesome. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about. It's fun to debate over. But did you know that on the day of Christ and in, in the millennium and after the millennial reign, when we after the marriage supper, after the great white throne judgment, after all of that, whatever your interpretation of those things are, after all of that, did you know that you will know every single detail about the end times? You will exhaust the limits of knowledge pertaining to the end times. Did you know that? It's true. When it happens, you will know all there is to know about it. Did you know that there's only one thing in Scripture that it says that these angels, these celestial beings, these heavenly things that exceed us in wisdom and knowledge and power, that some of them are the size of jumbo jets, like these awesome entities, there's one thing in Scripture it says that they're curious about. One thing. The Gospel. Gospel of Jesus Christ. First Peter, he says, which things the angels desire to look into. And if you follow that, it says, the prophets, when they prophesied, or the Spirit which was in them did prophesy about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Unto them it was revealed, not unto themselves, but unto us. Um, these things were reported, they did minister these things that were reported with those that now preach the Gospel with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. 
which things the angels not desire to look into. The point is, is that it's the gospel that was preached by the apostles, the early church fathers, the prophesi- prophets prophesied about it in the Old Testament. All of that, the glory, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what the angels desire to look into. That's it. They don't desire to look into eschatology. They don't desire to look into history. They don't desire... And of course, I'm just speculating here. It doesn't say that they desire to look into anything else, just the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just the gospel. They desire to look into the gospel. That same gospel that we oftentimes find ourselves ashamed of. Do you know... I'm, I'm coming to the good. I'm bringing it down for a closing. I know I've been preaching for a while. I'm sorry. We're, we're coming. This is our first, second, third, fourth, fifth closing. We're on number two, so we've got three more to go. Praise God. <laughs> After he talks about this, he says the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Salvation. Deliverance. Wholeness. Salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, from what we believe to what we do, to what we feel, to what we love, to what we say. That's faith to faith. What we believe, working out in our life. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Notice he doesn't say who doesn't have the truth, who suppressed the truth. And then he goes into this wonderful foundation for apologetics about how everything is clearly revealed in creation. God has made it known and made it plain that there is a God and that he is God and all that wonderful stuff. And the point is this, ungodliness and unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness, ungodliness comes first. And that is because every single sin, every single wicked thing flows from a lack of belief. A lot of times we use faith and belief as synonyms, and they can be, depending on how you use it. But there's this aspect of faith that represents truth, doctrinal truth. And God is put in the heart of every single person that has ever lived a measure of faith. That's Romans 12.3. He has put in every single person a measure of faith. Like in their whole epitome of darkness, he put this one light, this one spot of faith, of truth. And then they have a choice. They can either suppress that truth that he's put there, that he's revealed, or they can believe it. And believe actually means commit yourself to it, surrender to it, to submit to it, to trust in it, to exalt it, to let it become your all in all. That's what believe means if you carry that through in its contest. And so what he's saying here is that every person has a measure of faith. Everyone has the truth, but they either suppress that truth and push it down or they believe it. Now back to our slapping the mask on. Back to our reading a challenging portion in Scripture. When we come to that portion where God reveals something to us, there's a little bit of flesh that needs to be cut off. 
There's a little bit of iniquity that needs to be burned away. There's a little bit of junk that needs to just be weeded out. And we choose to come over here and say, I don't want to go through that pain. Guess what? We have just suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We have just become guilty before God. For the wrath of heaven is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodly, or ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When we take that truth, God shines the light on this area and we say, no, we're going to push that down because we don't want that moment of pain. We don't want that process. What we don't realize is we have sacrificed our potential for joy for a momentary content. Let me give you a funny example and then we'll close. Here's a funny example. You guys ready to laugh? You can laugh at my expense. Praise God. If you can't laugh at yourself, your life has no meaning as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> that was mean. I didn't mean it like that kind of. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, my stomach will let me eat certain kinds of food. It does not like it when I eat other kinds of food. It'll let me eat whatever I want. There's foods that I love that my stomach hates. There's foods that my stomach loves that taste like death. Amen. We go, when we go to a restaurant and I'm looking at the menu, the stuff that my stomach hates looks, sounds, and is in all actuality more delicious than the stuff that my stomach actually wants. Does anybody empathize with that? It's like, yeah. <laughs> My favorite food is Italian food. I'm not supposed to have dairy or gluten. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> My second favorite food is Cajun food. I'm not supposed to have spices or onions or garlic. <laughs> My favorite fruit is blackberries. I'm not allowed to have that either. <laughs> anyway, the point is this. When we go to a restaurant, I have this thing. I used to carry it in my wallet, but I've got it pretty much memorized now. I don't carry it now. But it was a little card, and it had the list of things I wasn't allowed to have. Um, I wasn't supposed to have. Or rather, the list of things that would result in unhappy experiences later. Uh, <laughs> and when we'd go to a restaurant, I had the truth right here in this little card. But that menu looked tantalizing. So I had an option. I could sacrifice and suppress the truth for my momentary satisfaction. And hopefully my wife wouldn't see what I was doing. Because <laughs> she'd tell me and get on to me. One time we were at um, Outback and I ordered something and my wife leans over me and says, he can't have that, don't bring that to him. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> true story. It's, it's all love. It's all love. True story. True story. I ordered French onion soup. I can't have gluten. I'm not supposed to have dairy and I can't have onion. So she was right in what she did. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I, and the cheese on top can't have that either. But so the point, the point is this. I have the ability to acquiesce or adhere to the truth, to acknowledge it. And I, I would have perpetual joy. 
Or I could suppress the truth and order whatever I wanted and it would result in what felt like death. But that's what we do with Scripture. We have the truth. And a lot of times we push it down so that we can have momentary peace, the world's peace, momentary satisfaction or contentment, but it's always going to lead to death and it's going to build a wall and prevent us from having true joy. And if you want the baptism of joy, when we get to the end of this series, we're going to pray for every single person here to get the baptism of joy. If you want the baptism of joy, true joy, you've got to shine the light on that stuff. You can't keep pushing it down because all you're doing is building one wall after another preventing you from getting where God wants to take you. And I refuse to be the one that says, that's okay. It's no worries. No, God loves you. And you are righteous in Christ by faith. But that righteousness is going to push some of that other nonsense out before it's all said and done. Even if it kills you and kills me, we're going to be killed together, but we're going to get that righteousness to carry out and produce the fruit. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house and to preach your word. Lord, I'm praying over this congregation and I'm saying this. If there are people in this, in this house that have been walking and living their life in such a way where they're, they're miserable and they're depressed and they're broken and they're, and they're anxious and they're fearful or whatever emotion uh, struggle and spiritual struggle they're dealing with, but they come in and they feel like they have to put a mask on or slap a smile on and pretend to be something other. Lord, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. I don't want that for them. I don't want this to be a fake, hypocritical church that's clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. I want this to be a church that's pure from the outside to the very, very core of its innermost the innermost heart of the innermost congregant, whatever. I just want this church to be clean and pure in the name of Jesus. And I want us to be a joyful church, to be a church that's glad to be a church that has this perpetual yearning for more of you. That we're not worried about the status quo. We're not worried about what people think. We're worried about you having your way. And regardless of the pain the process might bring, we want to be found like that gold. That our faith may be found unto glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We want that good thing. That better thing. Jesus. Lord, and I just pray that you would make the things known in your good time. Lord, that this wouldn't be taken or received legalistically, but this would be taken from a place of love. That it's love first and then the hatred of iniquity. That it's not the other way around. Because so often when we try to conduct ourselves from a position of hating wickedness before we learn to love righteousness, we develop a system that kills us. Lord, let this church be saturated in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed.